The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. Um, I'll keep my intro rather concise today just because we've got uh, some limited time. We should have a decent-sized show, but it's probably going to be closer to that hour mark than the hour and 20 or hour and a half sometimes these shows go. So uh, as long as we can keep Jim reined in, we'll, we'll target about an hour or so for this show. And to maximize use of that time, I will bring Jim on as soon as he's ready to speak, and uh, we can dive in. You know, fancy wow. that, everybody. We'll just we'll just dive right in, maybe. Diving right in. Well, we should at least explain why we're diving right in. We're on a tight schedule today, folks, and we're actually trying to record. This is a Friday morning. We should record Friday afternoon. We're going to try to record two Q&A shows today because yours truly will not be available next week. So I believe Chris will be doing at least some point over the next week or two, uh, you'll be doing a dedicated Social Security show, won't you, I believe? Yeah, I think the next uh, EDU show EDU. will be uh, something related to Social Security. Uh, so a Social Security-focused show, we'll call it. Uh, there's a, a lot of times there's <clears throat> questions or things that come up that don't really make a good question for the Q&A show, but they kind of are part of a, maybe a, a broader topic that's worthy of attention on an EDU show, and we take advantage of the times when, when gyms may be unavailable, and I dive into some type of uh, Social Security EDU topic. So I don't have it chosen yet, but that's the direction I think we're probably going for the next EDU show. Right. So you will hear, obviously, today's Q&A show. Next Saturday, you'll have a Q&A show, and I'll be able to do the EDU show from Massachusetts uh, in two more weeks. So anyways, it'll be a little little bit crazy for the next uh, couple of weeks while I'm traveling to the Ed Slot program, then going home to visit my dad and by default my mom, uh, and then flying to Kansas City for the estate planning symposium, and then finally back home to Colorado and get my life back to normal. Okay. So a little hectic today because we want to try to get both shows recorded. So we're going to do one Social Security question, not two, so we can pick up where we left off. We left off as a tease, if you remember last time, uh, on a trust question. 
So we'll wrap up that trust question and, and get. Oh, that's right. Other we, do, we need to tackle that one for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a good thing I remembered that, huh? Exactly. Or people will be just you know <laughs> stuck on the cliffhanger. <laughs> exactly. So, All do right. you want to do the social security one before that, or do you want to handle the cliffhanger? Get that tied no, up. No, we'll start with the social security question, okay. and then then when it's uh, perfect, non social security, we'll dive into that. Okay. All right. This came in. I don't know from where. No, oh, there's a state, but no hint. Um, there's probably a ton of hints for this state, but I'll skip it. The state is California. Okay, says my sister-in-law turned 70 this year. And this year, I believe this came in literally this year. So, yes, this year is 2023. Okay, so my sister-in-law turned 70 this year. Her late husband passed away 10 years ago, and she started collecting reduced survivor benefits when she was 60. She went back to work a couple of years later to make ends meet, and her workplace doesn't deduct Social Security taxes. She's still working and wants to continue working into the foreseeable future. On her Social Security statement, it states her delayed benefit amount is approximately 800 a month higher than her reduced survivor benefits that she's currently receiving. My question. I was listening to another podcast. Well, this is problem. But no, just kidding. <laughs> can listen to as many podcasts as you want. I'm just teasing, folks. I was listening to another podcast, and they said, in a similar but not quite exact situation as ours, that her own delayed benefit at age 70 will be reduced because she started receiving her survivor benefits early. Is this the case? I think I know the answer to this. I'm just going to shout out the answer. I have no idea, Mm -hmm. folks, what Chris is going to say, literally. I don't think her benefits are going to be reduced because Survivor and your own are two separate pools. But that's my answer. I have no idea if I'm right or wrong. There you go. Wow. That is the right answer. You don't even need me. Moving on. Moving on. (laughs) No, I think. While you're ahead. Yeah, this is is a a common uh, confusion because there are cases where claiming – a certain benefit early affects another benefit, but it's not in this case because of exactly what Jim said. Survivor benefits are kept distinctly separate from your own retirement benefit and your spousal benefits. A lot of people mix together spousal and survivor like it's one thing, and it's not. It's two very different things. So in this particular case, the fact that she claimed her survivor benefit first at age 60 and that's an age where she couldn't have claimed her own benefit anyway because you got to be 62 for that she claimed her survivor benefit after her uh, husband passed away at 60 the fact that that was done before her full retirement age has no effect on her own retirement benefit that she could claim which apparently now is $800 more than what she's been collecting she should immediately (laughs) switch over to that benefit. There is no benefit, additional benefit for her waiting. She was earning a benefit by waiting to claim her own retirement benefit. And that uh, 
was in the form of those delayed retirement credits, which got her age 70 benefit up to that $800 more than what her survivor benefit that she's been collecting for a while has been. So um, if that's what they said on the podcast, and of course we're getting this secondhand, maybe it was just a misunderstanding, and they may have been talking about claiming a um, you know your own benefit and then getting a spousal benefit, which... Um, those two things are connected as far as early claiming, but a survivor benefit is different. You can absolutely claim your own first and then later switch to an unreduced uh, survivor benefit, or in her case, vice versa. She could claim the survivor benefit and then later on claim her own unreduced um, uh, retirement benefit. The only time the retirement benefit would have been reduced itself is if she'd claimed it before her full retirement age, but she's way beyond that, right? She's 70, so we don't have to worry about that. Um, So yeah, I think uh, if it hasn't happened yet, given what you've told me, I see no reason why she shouldn't switch immediately to that other benefit, Um, her her own benefit. She's she's leaving $800 a month on the table. The good news is if um, she's turned 70 fairly recently, she could go in and ask them to uh, retroactively file back six months up to six months, and maybe that'll get her back to seventy. Because if she doesn't do that, she's literally left money on the table. Um, so um, make sure that your sister-in-law asks them about retroactive filing uh, to the extent she wants to claim back to seventy. Now, if she retroactively goes back before she turns seventy, then that would reduce her benefit. I don't think I'd recommend doing that because, you know, why not take advantage of the biggest benefit she can get, the eight hundred dollars a month increase. Um so limit any retroactivity likely back to her age seventy. But if she's six months past her age seventy, then they're they're not gonna get her all the way back there anyway, because there's a limit on retroactive claiming to uh six months or uh, back to your full retirement age, whichever is less. She's way beyond her full retirement age, but she is limited by that six-month rule on retroactive claiming. So I wanted to throw that out there as well. But uh, Jim, you you got that exactly correct. That's your cue. I did I did kind of switch to that very quickly, though, so I don't blame you for not unmuting your mic and okay, jumping right in. Okay, there we go. <laughs> You threw me for a loop on I that know. one. It was a little sudden this time, so I, I agree. <laughs> I admit. <laughs> Folks, if you're wondering what in the hell Jim is doing, it's I'm trying to get all the questions uh, in order that I want to do. I'm trying to do this all electronically so I don't print them anymore. Mm-hmm. It's a lot harder. I'm sorry. Yeah. It is harder doing it this way. I have my laptop in front of me. I have my iPad in front of me. I'm trying to get the emails I want to read next set and just... It's so much easier when I printed this as paper. <laughs> yeah, until you I, lose I, them. That's the only downside. I, oh, yeah, I did. I did keep lo- Well, I think you were stealing them. But, um, yeah, I did in the past have Chris steal my printed questions. And then that was even worse because there was no longer a digital uh, copy remaining. Okay, let's get back into the question that I left off at... Um, Last week, do you remember what it was, Chris? I'm going to throw you under the yeah, bus. Yeah, we now. were about to go into um, describing another version of a trust that I now don't recall what what that version was. 
but we were about to evolve into a longer conversation than we had time to go through. So we kind of cut it off. Uh, but you wanted to say more about um, a specific type of trust that the listener had brought up. Right. Did that capture it? (laughs) You kind of did. We had two listeners, folks, one from Minnesota, one from Washington. Both had heard the show on islets, irrevocable life insurance. Well, not a whole show. It was a question we answered on an islet for reducing a a state taxes. Mm -hmm. They wrote as a question because both those states, Minnesota and um, Washington, as well as I think 12 other states, I believe there's 14 states total. And I apologize if people can hear a lot of landscaping going on. Can you pick that up, Chris, over the mic? It's not obvious, so you're fine. Okay, perfect. No problem. Great. Um, But I have landscapers here, folks, so uh, I don't know if you can hear them blowing their leaves. Okay. Both Washington and Minnesota, as well as 12 other states, have state estate taxes. So many tax planning strategies, estate tax planning strategies, that were common before the 2017 Tax Cuts and Job Act changed things around, which is set to expire in another three years. Because of that and because of portability, which was the ability for married folks, this is a federal law as well, for married folks to share in what is known as their estate tax exemption. They created something called portability. And because of the expansion of the estate tax exemption amounts, for all these reasons, Chris, the trusts that these two gentlemen were asking about are really not all that common anymore. Right. I think I think they will become common after 2026 or after 2025, and the estate tax exemption amounts drop again. You might find these becoming common again. But for those of you who live in states with estate taxes, the limits are very low. Massachusetts is just a $1 million exemption before Massachusetts is going to start taxing your estate. Now, I don't know what they are in Washington and Minnesota. I didn't look them up. It's not it's germane. It's fairly to low. Question. It's you know a couple million or so, if I remember correctly, okay. in Washington. So both these gentlemen asked pretty similar questions. One was asking, what about a credit shelter trust? And another asked, what about a disclaimer trust? Disclaimer trusts, credit shelter trusts, AB bypass trusts are all different names for very, very similar types of trusts. They're all from the same family. I'm not going to get into what a dis- I, I'll briefly mention what a disclaimer trust is and what a bypass trust is, credit shelter trust, but we're not going to get into the nuances of them because for most of you listening, you're not going to use this strategy. But for those of you in the 14 states with estate taxes, these strategies are still alive, not for federal estate tax, but for state estate tax. Now, before everybody else starts advancing through this answer, because like, oh, this ain't going to apply to me, I'm going to advance through it. Just a few weeks ago, 
Bernie Sanders again has introduced into the Senate. It's going to go nowhere. But it's telling what politicians are thinking. Once again, he and Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts want to lower the federal estate tax exemption from its current 12 plus million per person, 24 plus million per married couple, huge amount, which is going to drop to 5 million January 1st of 2026 per person adjusted for inflation since 2017. So they're estimating it'll be about $8 million per person, $16 million per married couple, still a very high amount. But they want to drop in their latest proposal it down to $3.5 million. And that's a negotiation by Sanders because he wants it, as well as many other politicians, back to a million where it was for quite some time after being raised from as little as 600,000. Mm-hmm. When I first started practicing as a financial planner, right. that was the limit. Yeah. I have sweaters older than that. Don't think they're not coming after the estate tax and lowering the exemption amounts. They're going to. Now, of course, you have the other side of the aisle wants to get rid of the estate tax. That's not going to happen either. I don't know, Chris, what the future is going to bring. So these strategies, even though we're not going to dig deep into them, may come back in vogue if a lot of this uh, happens. The general takeaway, though, from both these people were not so much does a bypass type of trust, whether it is a disclaimer trust or a credit shelter trust or a traditional AB trust, they're not asking, does the trust work for estate taxes? It very much does Mm -hmm. and will work in their states. They were wondering, my goodness, from what you have shared with us, Jim, we might be able to protect ourselves from state estate taxes, but those trusts might still get nailed by income taxes. Is that true? And I said, it depends. Right. So briefly, the way bypass trusts work, whether or not it's a disclaimer trust, a credit shelter trust, an AB trust, they're all typical what they call bypass trusts. Go back in time, folks, to when the federal estate tax exemption, and if you're listening to this and you were alive 20-odd years ago, that's what it was, was $600,000. And there was no portability. What does that mean? It means if you had a husband and wife back then with, say, a... $1 million portfolio or $1 million net worth, put it that way. Remember, the estate tax is not based just on your investments. Right. It's based on your investments, your home, your personal property, life insurance you own. Even if that life insurance has no cash value, the death benefit, 
which is not yours while you're alive. It's not paid out until you're dead. And it goes to someone else. The cash value of life insurance is included in your estate. And death. You start, yep, and death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You start adding that all up. It's not hard to get to 600,000 20 years ago. It's not hard to get to a million. It probably won't be hard to get to three and a half million for many of you listening. So pay attention. Prior to a law being passed called portability, let's go back to when it was a 600,000 exemption, Chris, and you have someone with a total estate of a million dollars, a married couple, a million dollars. When one of them died, the $600,000 exemption that they had died with them. If both of them died together and their total estate between what the husband owned and what the wife owned was a million, because they each had 600000 a good estate planning attorney could have done the tax return assuming the assets were owned appropriately. The husband, titling back then was so important. We don't talk about these things today, Chris. Titling assets back then was hugely important. You had to make sure the husband had 600000 of assets in his name and the wife had 600000 of assets in her name. So their personal exemption amounts of 600 each could be applied right. because they couldn't share. It wasn't portable. A lot of that has gone the way of the dinosaur. But back then it didn't. So a strategy was to get the husband to own half in a perfect world, the wife to own half. Distributions from retirement accounts. You had to pay huge attention to whose retirement account was being spent down. You had to spend them down so each could maximize their very limited 600000 exemption because they couldn't share it if one of them died. So estate planning attorneys came up and said, wait a minute, what if we create a bypass trust? They named it. And we allow at the death of the first spouse assets that they own to go into a trust and bypass going to the surviving spouse. It goes into a trust and that trust uses all of their $600,000 exemption amount. That way, if let's say the million dollars was all in the husband's name, none in the wife, and for a variety of reasons, they didn't want to, to put anything in the wife's name. If he died and the money went to the wife, it would go estate tax-free at his death because spouses always get it estate tax-free. Government will wait till the spouse dies. Then the spouse dies, Chris, and let's say there's still a million in there, 400000 would have been subject to a 55% right. estate tax. That's $200,000 would have been lost. Huge. So the husband would have created a bypass trust. At his death, $600,000 goes into the trust, not to the wife. It's not the wife's asset. She's just beneficiary of the bypass trust. The estate tax exemption amount goes into the bypass trust. The exemption amount absorbs any estate tax on those dollars. The wife has access to the trust, but they got to put limits on it. Mm -hmm. So it's not considered the 
wife's asset, but she can get the income. She can get in for health, education, maintenance, support, pretty much for anything, but legally speaking, not for anything. So that way, his 600000 exemption is protecting those assets. The wife still has access to them truly in an emergency or for income needs if she needs it. So no harm, no foul there. 400000 goes outward to the wife directly, well below her exemption amount, Chris, of 600000 back then. So instead of 200 thousand going to the federal government in estate taxes, nothing would if the wife died and her 400,000 assets hadn't exceeded her 600,000 exemption amount. So that real briefly, folks, is how bypass trusts work. They asked about a credit shelter trust or a disclaimer trust. They work just like described, except the credit shelter trust is not going to be optional. It will be done. It must be done. It's written that way. A disclaimer trust, as it sounds, lets the surviving spouse decide if they want money to go into the bypass trust or not. It just gives a little bit more flexibility. Irrespective, I'm going to leave it to you and your estate planning attorneys to figure out if you want a credit shelter trust, if you want a disclaimer trust, if you want the old AB bypass trust. They all work the same. One's optional, one's mandatory. That's all it is. Okay, so in states like Massachusetts with a $1 million estate tax exemption, and Massachusetts, like most states, don't offer portability, to the best of my knowledge, you still need to use these trusts because the exemption amount for the spouses will be lost. Now, I'm not again, I'm not an expert on estate planning, so I'm not 100% sure each state does not allow portability. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But even if they did, a million dollars is not much of an exemption amount. So if you want to try to benefit from it, there's other advantages. If so, Even if the exemption amount is a million, you still might want to use the trust because the appreciation of those assets is also going to be protected from future estate taxes. If it went to the spouse directly, even under portability, but that million, Chris, grew to four million before the second spouse dies, there might be some money subject to estate taxes. Keeping it in the bypass trust avoids that. But you lose the step up in basis in a bypass trust. This gets very complicated from a tax perspective. So you got to think about that as well. Now to their question. If they create bypass trusts, just whether it's a disclaimer or, or a credit shelter, and they fund it, is that trust going to get nailed with taxes? Income taxes specifically. Income taxes, I'm sorry, income taxes. You might save it from state estate taxes, which are significantly lower than federal estate taxes, but still high enough that warrants doing some planning. Are they going to get nailed by income taxes? Because as Chris and I have shared, trusts will pay the highest marginal income tax rate 
that's in existence at that time. So if income taxes continue to rise, trusts continue to pay more and more income taxes. They are subject to the highest marginal income tax bracket, which today, Chris, is what? 37. I think. 37. Mm -hmm. 37% after they receive a little bit more than $14,000 of income. And that's the key. If you fund your bypass trusts with an IRA, what is an IRA taxed at, Chris? Well, all distributions from an IRA are taxed as ordinary income. So it's income that uh, could, if recognized and held in the trust, be subjected then to the highest marginal income tax rates at that time in existence. And that's the challenge. If you've, We've got this whole estate tax issue going on, but if you're going to hold assets inside of these trusts going forward, if those assets generate income, you might be in a very bad position from an income tax standpoint. But what people do generally is they manage those or have the trustee manage those assets inside the trust in a way that doesn't generate a lot of income tax exposure for the trust, maybe none if done you know, perfectly. Uh, and this right, can happen through a variety of ways, but it's, it can be challenging. Right, but that's after the trust receives the IRA distribution. Mm-hmm. So if the trust is beneficiary of an IRA, as you all know, it must pay out over 10 years. Now, there's some exceptions to that. We won't get into it. But for the most part, that trust is going to have to pay out over 10 years, maybe less, but generally speaking, 10 years. Could be a little bit more as well, but generally speaking, 10 years. All the income coming out of that IRA that must be paid into that trust will be subject to income taxes. And then Chris is correct. Once the net of the very steep federal and state income taxes are assessed, the remaining dollars could be managed in such a way that they don't generate a lot of income. And that, Hence, remember, every, everyone, that's because, you know, this payout or this distribution from the IRA is being held inside the trust. So we've, we've talked about, you know, if it passes it through, that's a little bit different. But if it's being held inside the trust, that's the fear. You've got this huge impact of income taxes up front, and then you've got assets sitting in the trust that might generate more income moving forward. Right. So I'll get into that in a second. What I want to say is back when this was very common planning throughout the nation because of the low 600000 or the low $1 million exemption amounts and before portability, back in the day, as they say, you would go to great lengths to not fund a bypass trust with retirement assets. You would fund it with Roth assets. Now, that didn't happen until after 1998, and most people at first didn't have very big Roths because you couldn't even convert if you made more than $100,000 of income as a couple back then. So there wouldn't have been a lot of Roth assets to fund a bypass trust with. Life insurance was a wonderful mechanism for funding bypass trusts, as well as brokerage assets, real estate, land, anything that would receive the step-up in basis or be received tax income tax-free from a life insurance payout or something. 
you would fund the bypass trust with those assets. And that way, the trust would receive them essentially tax-free and estate tax-free. Because remember, your exemption amount was being applied to those. It was If you didn't, it was lost. Your surviving spouse couldn't put it over to him or her. Portability was not around back then. So you created it artificially with these types of credit shelter disclaimer style bypass trusts. So for those of you listening who live in states with a state tax, make sure you fund the trust with assets outside of a retirement account, except for a Roth. Roth are wonderful assets to leave to a bypass trust because when they pay out, the bypass trust can receive it 100% tax-free. Life insurance proceeds, 100% tax-free. Assets subject to a step-up in basis, 100% tax-free, capital gains tax-free in that case. And again, because you are using your exemption amount for that state you live in, state estate tax-free. So it all is going to come down to the assets you use to fund the trust. One other thing to keep in mind, as Chris briefly mentioned, I don't want you, at least in my opinion, some could disagree, funding a bypass trust with retirement assets because it's not a conduit trust that accomplishes nothing if the money pays into a trust and then immediately pays out to your spouse. It's now part of their estate and you're trying to avoid it being a part of their estate because it's going to get subject to your state's estate tax. So it has to stay in the trust. So it's not part of his or her estate, the surviving spouse. They'll have access to it, like I said, technically speaking, not full access. Legally speaking, they can probably get it if they need it. And that's the whole idea. Health, education, maintenance, and support is a pretty big matzo ball to get money out of that trust. So IRA assets have to stay in and then get subject to 37%, you said, or 36? 37. 37% federal income tax, and Lord only knows what your state is going to tax. You could easily lose 40, 45, 48% of it. Gone. So fund them with non-IRA assets. Then, once the money is in there, the trustee can manage it in a tax-efficient manner or pass the earnings out to the spouse. Because most bypass trusts give the spouse access to the income every year. Why is that important? The trust gets a deduction for income it passes out to someone, meaning the income will be taxed to the person in the manner the trust receives. If the trust passes out capital gains, the person receiving it pays capital gains tax. If it passes out income because it it had interest, which is always taxed as income, it had a bond say, it passes out the interest, it will be taxed as income to the recipient. Once the trust is funded, 
most of them will pass the income out and have it taxed at the spouse's level. But the main chunk of assets in the bypass trust, whether it's credit shelter or disclaimer, those assets remain out of the living spouse's estate and won't be subject to estate taxes. But it will never receive a step up in basis. So ultimately, the trust will will close and pay everything out and capital gains taxes will eventually be owed by the eventual recipients after the second spouse dies, which is usually children and things like that. So anyways, kind of involved question. That's why I didn't want to get into it last year, uh, last week. Well, oh, we couldn't. We, no way we had a time at the end. That's why I, I knew as soon as you started going that direction, I knew we wouldn't have time to get through that. So, because that right. took up, you know, that was a good 20 plus minutes. So, exactly. Okay. So, we still have a little bit more time mm-hmm. for this show, correct? Oh, yeah. Okay. We can do a couple more questions. This, <clears throat> this, this next one is not a question. It's an interesting case that I have been working on. And I asked the person if I could share it. In fact, there's two of these. And both gave me permission. Of course, we're always going to call them George, and I won't mention even what state they live in. These are real cases. And I thought people can benefit from what I'm helping these people learn. Okay, so the first one. Remember, Chris, we've often said and explained on this podcast many, many, many times what to do if you make an excess contribution to an IRA, whether it's a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA. Mm -hmm. You have till October 15th of the following year to rectify it, Mm -hmm. either by taking a corrective distribution or recharacterizing it to a different type of IRA. So if you put money in a traditional IRA and um, you couldn't or didn't want to or whatever the case may be, You can recharacterize it to a Roth, or you can withdraw it as a corrective distribution, and vice versa. You put money in a Roth, and you shouldn't have or didn't want to, you can rectify it by moving it to an IRA. We spoke about that, correct? Many times. Mm -hmm. We also shared that you can carry forward the excess amount to subsequent years. So maybe you weren't allowed to make a contribution in 2021 but you were in 2022, you can carry the excess contribution forward and absorb it into 2022. We spoke about that, remember? Right. All that does, though, is limit ongoing penalties. You'll pay Correct. one year's worth of penalty because it was in there, but then you'll get it. Perfect. Right? Let me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exactly where I'm going yep. with this. Okay. I'm just laying the stage, folks. Okay. We've talked about this many a times. What is one thing, though, in everything I just described, I never explained to people? I've thrown you under the bus here because you have no idea who this client is, what I'm doing What's with one them. thing that you never explained to people? Oh, how, how to actually count the excess contribution that you're rolling, you know, I, I hate to call it rolling over, but you're, you're allowing next year's contribution limit to absorb the excess from a year before, how to actually claim that or do that, maybe we've never talked about. Precisely. You nailed it. Oh, Excellent. Nice. Excellent. Wow. This particular person didn't know how to do that. Hmm. 
And when I explained it to him, he was, oh, that's not hard. (laughs) So I thought, I need to explain to people how to do that because I just off the cuff always say, and you can carry forward the excess and absorb it and eventually it will run out. Mm -hmm. Now, Chris is correct. If your excess contribution is so great that carrying it forward and absorbing it with future allowable contributions every year that some of your excess contribution has not been absorbed, those dollars will be subject to the 6% penalty. But in this particular client's case, he only had to pay the penalty once. Let me explain what happened here. And if the, if the person is listening, I might not get your case exact. Don't, don't worry. I, it's, you're all taken care of. You know that. I'm, I'm trying to do this solely from memory right now. I've got no notes in front of me. Okay. So he contacted us. And what he did, folks, in 2021, he made an excess contribution to his Roth IRA of $1,750. Apparently, he put the full contribution amount that he was allowed, he's over 59 and a half, in 2021, which I believe was $7,000. As he did his taxes, he realized his income was high enough where he couldn't put the full 7,000 in, but low enough where he could put some in. It's a sliding scale, Chris, correct? Yes. You know that, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. And hopefully our listeners know that. It's not a cliff. If you earn, and I don't know what the numbers in 2021 were, Chris can Google it if he wants, but if you earn between a certain amount and a certain amount, your contribution is slowly reduced until it's totally wiped out if you earn more than the, the top limit. So in 2022, as he's doing his 2021 taxes, and again, to the person who this actually is, it may I may not be describing it your exact way. I get that. But what happened in 2022 as he's doing his taxes for 2021, he realizes, uh-oh, I put 1750 too much in. He had until October 15th of 2022 to fix that. The IRS realizes the rules are so confusing, so convoluted, so erratic, and people's income is equally as confusing and as erratic sometimes. They don't know, Chris, until the following year what they actually earned and what they can actually do. So they give you to October 15th to fix it. This person did not fix it by October 15th. So that means he owes a 6% penalty tax for his 2021 excess contribution. So far, so good, Chris? Yes. In 2022, he was eligible to make a full Roth contribution. So his tax preparer just told him, I filed the 5329 to acknowledge your $1,750 2021 excess contribution to do a mea culpa and pay the 6% penalty tax. Mm -hmm. 
That is done on IRS Form 5329, and that was completed for him and filed with the IRS in 2022 when he did his 2021. It gets so confusing because in 2022, Mm -hmm. you're doing your 2021 taxes. So just this year, he took care of that. He filed the 5329, documented a 2021 excess contribution, and paid the 6% penalty. He also did not remove the $1,750 in 2022. But because he was eligible to make a full contribution, his CPA told him, you will owe no further penalty. The $1,750 has been absorbed as a carry forward. Effectively as a 2022 contribution of that Correct. amount. So now no further tracking or, or, or admitting issues on a 5329 because those issues no longer exist in this case. And no 6% penalty in Correct. 2022 because he didn't remove it by December 31st of 2022. He left it in, but there's no penalty. And his CPA told him it's been carried forward. Mm-hmm. So apparently he called up Vanguard. He's a VG, folks, Vanguard engineer. Called up Vanguard and said, hey, you guys got to file something. You guys got to tell the IRS that I'm carrying this forward. And Vanguard said, we're not filing anything. We don't do that. This is an issue between you and the IRS. Right. And he got a hold of me. And he's like, Jim, this, what do I do? How, how do I keep this penalty from happening? And I walked him through it. So follow the logic here, folks. And I warned this guy, you might get a letter audit on this. Mm -hmm. Don't freak out. You've got everything laid out. But you might get an audit letter, letter audit rather, in a couple of years. You're not going to get it this year. Two, three years from now, maybe. The IRS software has all the information it needs to figure this out. Many, many times, believe it or not, the software figures this out and you're not going to get a letter on it. But many, many times the software screws up and you get a letter on it. Follow the logic of what the IRS knows. The IRS doesn't know it knows this. Their software knows this. In 2021, he contributed his full contribution to his Roth. Vanguard would have reported that in May of 2022 to the IRS on form 5498, folks. All of you have that. If you have an IRA, your custodian is filing every May form 5498. You get a copy of it and they tell you, you don't got to do anything with this. This is for your records. We sent it to the IRS. They have to send the IRS the value of your IRA contributions made to your IRA, and if you have difficult-to-value assets like real estate, gold, private placements, businesses, if you have difficult-to-value assets, the custodian has to flag that to the IRS so they can pay special attention to it. They they really are going after these non-traditional assets in IRAs. That's all reported on 5498 every year. So the IRS was told in May of 2022 that this guy put seventh grand into his Roth in 2021. 
Now, the IRS also has his 2021 tax return, and they can immediately figure out what, Chris? If he was allowed to make that $7,000 contribution. Correct. And their software knows this guy made an excess contribution of 1750 Yep. We're going to nail him. However, he just filed form... Um, Got to get all these forms missed up. 5329, got all these forms in my head going crazy. He filed form 5329 this year admitting what the IRS's computer probably figured out on its own. But then the IRS's computer is going to say, oh, here's his form 5329. He's paid the 6% penalty for 2021. Beautiful. But the IRS's computer also knows well, wait a minute, this is a carry-forward penalty. We can nail them in 2022. So the IRS's computer can then go and get his 2022 taxes. But they're going to see on his 2022 tax return, what, Chris? That he was allowed to make a contribution. And the first thing the software is going to do is apply any leftover excess from the year before to that contribution. And as long as he doesn't make additional contributions, they'll realize that he stayed under the limit and all is good. Exactly. And that was my first question to him. Did you put any money in your Roth for 2022? His answer, none. Good. I told them should be fine. That's how they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Vanguard is right. They do nothing. This is between you and the IRS. Their computer system, folks, has all the information. I just don't know how good their computer system is at pulling all this and figuring it out. And the black helicopter tinfoil hat wearing me, which that's a joke, folks. I'm not a tinfoil hat black helicopter person. But the cynic in me says, I think. They sometimes even know no penalty applies, but they're like, hell with it. We're going to send them a letter audit, and if, if they're scared and send us the money, great. We got extra money. That's the cynic in me. I don't know that's if that's true cynical, or not. Yeah. That is cynical. <laughs> I told him you have all the information. If you get a letter audit, you explain everything that I just told you. You send them forms of your 5498 if you'd like. Send them a copy to 5329. Tell them that just here, here is my 2022 taxes. You can see I could make the contribution. It was absorbed. You don't have to file anything. It's all filed. I thought that was a pretty good thing because we had never talked about that. Yep. All right. The last one, which is really quick, because then we'll have to wrap up this show so we can start recording the second show. This recently happened to a podcast listener. He reached out and he was wondering if there's anything he could do. And sadly, I told him, I don't think so. But I reached out to a contact in the Ed Slot group who is a ERISA attorney. Uh, ERISA is the uh, law that was passed in the early 70s. It, what is it? Employee Retirement Income Security Act, ERISA. That protects um, employees mm-hmm. from companies doing nefarious things with their retirement benefits. Yeah. I said, I'll contact him, but I pretty much feel I know what his answer is going to be. You are SOL. And then I asked him when 
it was confirmed that there's not much this man can do because he's livid. I said, we have a lot of people in your situation. And I said, I bet a lot of our listeners aren't even considering what happened to you. Can I share your story? He said, sure, absolutely. I want people to know what happened to me. We're going to call him George. I'm not going to tell you where he lives. I will tell you the actual companies involved and what he did. You have no idea about this, Chris, either. I don't think I even CC'd you on any of this. I think you will say, Chris, many, many people who work with us are engineers, physicians, higher paid employees, and you don't even have to be white collar. We have blue collar. We had a mechanic once point out to us, he wrote to us and said, hey, stop saying attorneys and and, uh, physicians and engineers, software engineers. I'm a mechanic and he made well over $100,000. I think it was at 180 or 160. So we have highly paid people working for us, I think is a safe assumption to say, Chris. And it is not rare to find people with deferred compensation plans, non-qualified deferred compensation plans. Correct? Oh, I think, uh, yeah, and you did copy me on this, so I know where you're headed. When I'm, I'm, I think it's good that we bring this up and warn people. Right. So a non-qualified deferred compensation plan, folks, briefly, is a plan that can discriminate it can discriminate against other employees. Right. It is designed for executives of the firm and highly paid individuals of a firm. It's used as a way of a golden handcuff almost, where they can say, hey, you can defer some of your income, put it in this plan. Some plans grow at variable rates, others grow at guaranteed rates. And then when you retire, you can defer the compensation, grow these dollars. And when you retire, the caveat is they generally pay out quickly over a number of years, three years, five years, 10 years, usually. And it's it's generally a fixed thing that's defined. Yeah. Correct. In order for them to discriminate, the plans are subject to the creditors of the company. So they're not guaranteed. So there is risk that the employee takes on as well by participating in them. But if you're working for a very financially strong company, most employees don't worry about that. And then there's certain things like a rabbi trust that sometimes are utilized, which I won't get into, to help protect from these types of of fears. But they're a very common plan. But they have very little protection, not just from creditors, but from companies saying, no, we don't want to do it anymore. Believe it or not, read the disclosure documents. This guy did. After what happened to him, he read the disclosure documents and he was shocked to see that this plan can be manipulated, closed, changed, altered pretty much at will. And here's what happened. He worked for Plantronics. I think that's the headset people, isn't it, Chris? Yeah. Something like that. Mm -hmm. He worked for Plantronics and had participated in their deferred, excuse me, their non-qualified deferred compensation plan as a highly paid individual. He had $1.8 million in it. It was supposed to pay out to him in equal payments over his first 10 years of retirement. 
Plantronics was taken over by HP. I think the, the uh, purchase went through last year. This just happened recently to him, last year. He received notice this year without warning that the Plantronics Deferred Compensation was closing and all $1.8 million was paid out to him this year in one, one lump massive, yep. fully taxable as income lump sum. Crazy, huh? <laughs> yeah. That's... Causing him to pay by his calculations four to $500,000 more in taxes than he would have had to pay if he could have spread it out over 10 years. Yep. He's livid. Mm-hmm. Absolutely livid. He conceded the plan documents disclose all that. Yep. And there was little he could do. I'm going to read from you folks verbatim what my friend, the ERISA attorney, said. And then I shared this with this person. Jim, Hewlett Packard, Hewlett Packard acted unreasonably if it terminated his deferred compensation plan and paid it out in a lump sum when the plan originally called for installment payments, especially without even notifying the participants in advance. It is sometimes easier for non-qualified plan participants to actually sue successfully than it would be for an ERISA-protected qualified plan participant. Mm. But despite that fact, your client will likely not have much recourse here. Plan documents give the company the unconditional right to terminate the deferred, excuse me, No, deferred compensation. I always get deferred compensation and defined compensation confused in my my head. Plan documents typically give the company the unconditional right to terminate deferred compensation plans at any time. And he acknowledged that his plan summary included that language. It is also typical for a non-qualified plan to provide for an automatic lump sum payment immediately upon termination of the plan. The company wants to get rid of the plan, and it doesn't want to be saddled with ongoing installment payments. The bottom line is that Hewlett-Packard may have acted unfairly, but it probably did not act illegally. Think about it. It would be very surprising if a company of that size and magnitude would have taken these extraordinary steps without having all of its ducks in a row. Everyone out there who's contemplating or is in a non-qualified deferred compensation plan, this is a very real risk, especially if your company is in negotiations to either be taken over or take over another company. These plans are great when they work. They stink when the company just says, sorry, we're out of here. Keep 
that in mind. Anyways, he wanted me to share that with everyone. And I, I thought that was well worth sharing Yeah, because we have a lot of people in these plants. Yeah. Yeah. I think most people are unaware of, you know, the full rules and what could possibly happen. Most of them don't end up doing that, that, that closure in one massive lump sum, but that's, I mean, it cost him a pretty penny in taxes with that one decision. Um, so just be aware of that and I'm not sure you can do a whole lot about it, but maybe bring that up. If, if you know that your company is being sold, <laughs> hopefully they put in some kind of protections or some assurances that that's not going to happen. Cause that was a very unfortunate situation. So, so that does bring us to the end of this show. It was this Q and a show. And, um, um, We'll have another one coming up for you. It'll be a week for you. It'll be about 10 minutes for us <laughs> before we start <laughs> recording another one. But, uh, uh, yeah, we appreciate everybody sending in questions. Way to do that, as a reminder, is send them directly to Jim, jim at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. Make sure in the subject line it indicates it's a question for the show. And um, you have a chance of having us cover it right here on uh internationally listen to podcast. I can say that because there's people that occasionally listen from outside the United States. So sounds very impressive too, don't you think? Well, I think internationally renowned. Oh, renowned. That's even better. Yeah. That's even better. Yeah. I I like that. Well, I'm known as the one who has mastery of the English language and you don't. True. You really, you know, fix that up for me. So I appreciate it. I nailed it. Yeah. Well, Uh, bask in that glory and we'll be back with everybody else next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 